you are listening to the Cinema We See podcast. I'm Gabby. I'm Chris. And it's episode three. But before we get into Paris, Texas, I want to quickly talk about movie and BFI player. So, first, and, first of all, I all know what you're thinking. You're a Netflix subscriber or Now TV, Amazon Prime, that kind of thing. And, you know, people have got you into watching Stranger Things and you just... You don't have the time, basically, and we're encouraging you to check out these two streaming services, and we're making these picks because, you know, it's quite hard to find some of the things you get on BFI Player or Mubi. I mean, some of these haven't even got DVD releases, so it is quite hard to see these things. However, I will say that if you're thinking of cutting ties with Netflix, you got fed up, I think, I believe they're... Um, raising their prices per month yeah, for Netflix. Yeah. So if you are thinking of, you know, saying bye-bye, we we do want to encourage you to check out Mubi and BFI Player. I mean, last year, um, we had Filmstruck, which I subscribed to uh, back in February of 2018, and I got you, Chris, also yeah, into that's it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I, I just got the tail... And end of it though. Yeah, before. did you have a month of it or something? Yeah. And, yeah. And what happened was it was it was launched last year in February and it was shut down in I wanna say October. So you only have what, seven months or something of it. Uh, my maths is not great. But the thing was it I I felt it like someone had punched me in the chest and afterwards there was this big thing because it hadn't it hadn't just been shut down in the UK, it had been shut down in the US, and I think it had like only had about a couple of months in Spain and been shut down. And there was this big um, sort of outcry from people like Barry Jenkins and Ava, Ava DuVernay and Edgar Wright saying, you have just taken away a film school for people. And I remember even my mum you know, I got her on the free trial and she watched um, a few great films on there. She said to me, after reading all this press Filmstruck was getting, I had no idea it, it meant something like this to people. And the thing was, Filmstruck was making a profit, but it wasn't making the massive profit it wanted. And that's why they shut it down. And it's just heartbreaking. So, you know, not to be too pushy or anything like that, but you know, part of why Chris and I are doing this podcast is we want people to explore independent cinema and give it the sort of attention it deserves. Absolutely. I've got so much joy from independent cinema. I'll be honest, I was probably from this generation that um, was drawn to Netflix and drawn drawn into these more popular stream services. And so I was sceptical of anything... In independent, because thinking, why would it remain independent? Surely it would be put in front of me. Yeah. It's good books. What I found is when I started getting involved in watching independent film, that I found it quite a lot of it was deeper than what's currently on in the box office, and I will. Um, I really want everyone to know that and be aware of that, so they can experience the same joy that I got from independent films. It's also why I'm doing this podcast to raise awareness of it. But there's another element as well where I think a lot of independent film is part of our cultural heritage. It's yeah. these independent films that 
app that worked as a, as a sandbox for yeah. the so many box office hits. Mm. So we were reviewing the Mean Streets. That's right, yeah. Last week, and that was essentially a sandbox for the for more, more popular mafia films such as The Godfather. We wouldn't have gone The Godfather if we didn't have the Mean Streets. Yeah. Basically. And I think independent cinema is quite often the real time capsules of things like the 1950s and the 1970s because they had smaller budgets. So they were shooting in real diners and down real streets and things like that. And they weren't on sound stages. So they have this real feeling of life. And that's, I, I'm so drawn to film because I can suddenly be in 18th century China mm. and it's amazing and you learn so much you empathize so much and I I'm a big fan of blockbusters um you know there's a previous episode that was done last night we've talked about spider-man I love blockbusters but I I want people to know there's more to film than what's happening now yeah and not just to labor my previous point the thing about think thing about these independent film and all the films is that they are a part of our cultural heritage but unlike say a historic building or say maybe a castle country house a landmark that's that's physical location that can't be moved and which everyone could come and see if we don't support these services if we don't use them then we lose it it's mm. it's it's not always there it's, it's, it's some it's far easier to take it for granted yeah because if people aren't using these services then it is possible that unfortunately a lot of this media will disappear from memory yeah and people and well future generations won't be able to access it as easily as we've been able to yeah um so yeah that's just a a little bit of an extended introduction because we were talking and it was something we wanted to highlight a bit more. But um, yeah, so we'll get into Paris, Texas. This is a film from 1984, directed by Wim Wenders, who mostly did uh, films in the German language before this film. Uh, one of my favourites is from 1973, Alice in the Cities. Um, and yeah, I, so he's working here with his director of photography that he's always worked with, Robbie Muller. And Robbie Muller, as well as working with Viv Vendors, he went on to work with uh, Alex Cox and Jim Jarmusch. And he filmed, uh, he shot rather Barfly and Breaking the Waves. But here with this film, I think it was the ace in the hole for Vim Vendors because he was working with a screenplay written by Sam Shepard, the actor, the playwright, and uh, Sam Shepard yeah we'll get more into it but um, the other thing was that the lead performance is from Harry Dean Stanton and he was known as a character actor showing up in Cool Han Luke and Kelly's Heroes and this is his first lead performance and he just has this wonderful aura to him did you feel that in the opening scene in the desert? Yeah excellent because that was the point. Last point I was really want to talk about in his performance. Without even having to say a word, you can see that there's a lot of depth to this mm. character. That is 
facial expressions, the way he carries himself. And he's in this crumpled suit with a bright red cap and bottle of water. That's it, in the desert, alone. And um, he he won't speak, will he? He's walking around in the desert and, well, he's got no one to speak to until he goes into this bar and he just suddenly collapses, probably from dehydration or something like that. And um, he, he he's taken in by a doctor, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and um, that's where he sort of goes through his wallet and finds his ID and a number to call his brother, Walter, who's living in L.A. And um, anyway, so Walter comes and he picks him up, doesn't he? And he says, right, I'm going to drive you back to L.A. And he's trying to get um, him to talk because he's just been gone for four years, I think it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, the thing is, is that there's a little bit of exposition which tells us that when Travis just suddenly disappeared, um, his brother Walter and his wife Anne had to take in Travis's son, Hunter. That's right. Because he just showed up on the doorstep and they'd left him. And um, they have to... Well, Walter has to explained to Travis over the course of their journey that because Hunter I think was three years old that he calls Hunter calls Walter and Anne mum and dad even though it's not his real parents um I personally in my life can relate to that because I was brought up by my grandparents so I can understand this kid who when he does meet Travis when he arrives at their LA home He's trying to work out who he is and it's it's like a puzzle almost. You're trying to work out all these different relationships. And um yeah. I think that is the premise of the film. It's like we we're mentioning the very beginning of the film, we're first introduced to the remote Travis in more ways than one. You can see that he's out in the desert, he's on his own isolated. But we also find like saying later on that He's a, there's an emotional distance between him and other people mm. as well the way he acts and um, so the film is that and through the film we discover more of his past as we're led into his future and, and in that respect it is a bit like a puzzle because you're thinking how did you get to where he is at this moment in time but then we get, we're given bits of information by his past and it starts yeah. becoming I think, clearer and yeah. that is in es- that lies in essence the plot of the film. We're learning more and more about his past until mm. we reach the finale. Yeah, Travis's past is the big mystery of the film. Um, my favourite scene is, uh, again, it's in the home of Anne and Walter, and they've just had dinner, and Walter, who's, you know, he, he, see, he feels the tension in the air, he says, how about we get out some you know, Super 8 footage, so a little home video footage, and they put it on on a projector, and they put it on in the living room. And during this scene, the score just aches with these strings, and it's so powerful. Um, it was funny, Mark was working on his fish tank, and he just turned around and watched the whole scene. He must The music must have caught his attention first. And then he, he turned and 
it's a lovely scene. There's no dialogue whatsoever. You're just hearing the music and you're watching the footage. And there's, uh, there's Travis, Harry Dean Stanton, and there's Hunter, who's about age three, and there's Walter and Alan. They've all gone on a road trip to the beach in Texas. And this is our first shot of Jane, played by Natasha Kingsky, who is the mother of Hunter. And we see she's so young and vibrant and so in love with Travis. And you think, God, what on earth went wrong? And how did we end up with Travis walking alone in the desert with just this red cap and this crumpled suit and all alone? But it is very powerful. And I feel at the end of that scene, you see Hunter looking at Travis differently. Because I, I believe they, they mentioned that it's the first time Hunter had seen that footage and of course he doesn't remember being three years old and being with his parents and he 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 looks at Travis differently and um, after the footage ends Walter says right it's time for you to go to bed to Hunter and Hunter goes around the room and he says goodnight to Anne he calls her mum and then he says to Walter goodnight dad and then he even goes to Travis and says goodnight dad and it's a big breakthrough in their relationship just from that scene I think it's, you know, definitely one of the best in the film. I'm going to pick up on one particular thing you mentioned, and that was the music mm. in the background there. I believe the music was composed by Rai Kuda, a very famous Yes, Rai Kuda. Yes. Yeah. And the song in question, I think this was playing at the beginning of the film, I think it played at other points throughout the film, it's um, a song called Dark Was the Night. Mm-hmm. And that, and if you watch the film, it's the, just the guitar playing when... They're looking across this arid landscape, this the the arid landscape of the American Southwest. It's really like a desert, but you've got some shrubbery, you've got a road, maybe tell maybe um, some electric pylons, and then you've got a small village or farm. But really, it's a desolate, arid landscape, and that's complemented by. The guitar playing where it's just slowly yeah. strumming ding, the strings. Ding. That ding. kind of yeah. This, yeah, the song is very simplest. Well, it's not simplest. It's melancholy. Yeah, it, it's 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 melancholy. It's a, it's a slow song. It's melancholy, but it's also very powerful, and that really, well, I think that really contrasts well with these the surroundings, the scenery, the landscape yeah. that the characters inhabit. Yeah. And um, after the home video scene, we we dis- we have another turning point in the plot because Anne decides it's the appropriate moment to tell Travis about Jane. And what she tells him is that Jane, shortly after leaving Hunter with Anne and Walter, opened a bank account in Houston where she wires money um, once a month to an account for Hunter for when he's older. And um, Travis is sort of quite surprised by this. And he's, he's not quite sure what to do because, you know, four years passing and way before the internet and all that kind of thing. And he... Yeah. Even if in within that four years he wanted to return to his family, how does he do it? And Anne has given him a location of where she could be. And I think with some thought, he decides that he is going to find Jane. 
and he takes Hunter with him because Hunter says, hey, can I tag along? You know, trip to Houston, that's where the space station is. Um, so... I think as well, in the, in the film, Travis encourages Hunter to go with him, but also Travis has been just really on the road for four years. That's right. Yeah. Just just on his own, what you've got a lone, well, how would you say it? Lone wolf kind lone of guy. Lone wolf, yeah. And what, what he does is that he sort of encourages that feeling within Hunter as well. He wants to go on, they want to go on an adventure with him, almost on a road trip with him. Yeah. And so he finds that he's able to convince his son to go with him to find his mother. And that's... And I think th- those scenes as well are very powerful because you do see that father-son bonding, really. It's now a story of father and, uh, and their son yeah. on the road trying to find... Well, the father trying to find his wife and the son trying to find his mother. His mother, yeah. And for them, they're, you know, they're, they're both in the, the same situation where they haven't seen her for four years, they don't know what she's like, and... Um, when they get to Houston uh, and they arrive at the bank, and it's this really strange thing I've never seen before, and I don't know if it's only in America. It's like a drive through like a McDonald's or something like that, where, or Tollbridge, maybe, where you drive your car through the, you know, the barriers or whatever, and you pay your money, and then you drive off. And that's where uh, this little red car comes up, and it's Jane, or what they believe to be Jane, they just see like the side of her face and the back of her head, and they decide to follow that car, and they're on the motorway, and it's that red car, that red car, and they're following this car, and eventually she parks up, and goes in this building, and then Travis gets out of his car, tells Hunter to stay where he is, and he goes in the building as well. And... I don't know if there's a polite way to say this, but the building he enters is this sort of weird, sexy kind of... Do you remember it? Of course, yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll quickly explain this point and go on to another (laughs) one, but in essence, the building he goes into when trying to, or thinks trying to find his wife is... It's... It's a, it's a strip joint. More but, or less a strip joint. Yeah. But <laughs> there are other... But on the low levels of the building, there's peep show booths. And in oh, these, inside these peep show booths, they're <laughs> what separates the clients from the actresses. Is a two-way mirror. No, one-way mirror. One-way mirror, one-way mirror, one-way mirror. Yeah, that's it. So she can't see him, he can see her. Yeah. 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 And he's got a little phone that he can talk to her through. And it's all a little bit creepy and a little bit weird. But it's okay. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, it was 1984. Uh, I think it probably still happens now, but... <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably just through Skype or something like that. I mean, who knows? Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, oh, I will say the humour in this film, it comes out of nowhere, but it, it is one that was making me chuckle. Like, um, you know, like... Um, he, he's totally out of place in this joint, you know, he doesn't know where to look and eventually, as you were saying, he finds himself in this little booth thing and, uh, you know, he asks for this, he kind of does a description of Jane 
but he gets another blonde woman who's in like her mid-twenties and he kind of puts the phone down on her and just leaves because it's, well, it's not Jane, is it? So he goes back and then that's when he gets Jane. And N- Natasha Kingsky, or I think that's, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she, she's this, she's such a presence. She kind of reminds me a bit of a cross between Elizabeth Taylor and Lee Remick because she's looking right into camera um, because she's looking into this mirror and she's just so slow with her delivery of her words and it's very engaging and um, we also have the nice sort of contrast of we're with her in this brightly lit room and then we're with Travis in this dark booth and even though it's dark and there's only a little bit of light we can see as soon as he sees her, he immediately starts crying. And the tears are coming down his Now, I think and... before we go on to... Because we're getting towards the end of the film now. Before we go into the finale of the film, what I'd like to say is an opportunity to say, and really this is reinforcing what Gabby's explained, is that as an independent film, Power Texas, it's got everything... Ziggy, <laughs> <laughs> be quiet. Moral bones... As you were saying, Christopher. So yeah, Paris, Texas is an independent film. It's got everything you want from it. It transports you into the distant world of the characters. You really do, I think you really do feel like you are there in that world of the American Southwest. And you've got the excellent music of Raikuda, which also helps create, create, create this atmosphere that you become engrossed in. But also, and this means... I don't think it's necessarily the case for all independent films. It's got a good plot as well. It does, yeah. And the writing of Sam Shepard, yeah. I just wanted to make that point before we went into the finale. And another part of the finale as well, and what's also good, uh, what's also good about it as an independent film is that it experiments and succeeds with innovative cinematography. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. The way he can manage natural light in the deserts and the neon light of uh, Houston is a wonderful blend but um, also in the finale when the two characters we have Travis and his shall we say estranged partner yeah. wife Jane yeah. yeah when they're both in the well when they're on either side of the peep show booth and they're separated by the one way mirror mm. It's this you would think it'd be very difficult to really shoot a scene yeah. with a one way mirror and two characters on yeah. the side of it. But how you how the I believe it's Robbie Robbie uh, Rob, Robbie Muller. Robbie, Robbie Muller. Yeah. How he is able to use the camera to be able to show both characters on either side of this booth communicating with each other yeah. while also having the realistic mm. effect of the one-way mirror is 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 astounding for me, yeah. and there's one one really good part of it where because it's a one-way mirror you can see Travis's reflection, yes. but you can also see Natasha's well I'm oh, sorry Jane's yeah. reflection, and you can see his face and her face come together. You can see you know, yeah, yeah, you can see yeah. them both looking at each other, yeah. and. It, it, 
it's it's hard to it's hard to describe without actually seeing it. Yeah. But it's um, just that just that detail, it's just that attention to detail and mm. that almost conscientiousness when it comes to portraying you know the this scene realistically yeah. that helps transport you into that final scene of the film. I also feel in that scene, which is essentially the climax of the scene, that um, the sound design is spot on because there's a lot of J cuts, uh, also editing, sound design and editing, because there's lots of J cuts and L cuts where we're, we're holding the shot on Jane's face but we're listening to Harry Dean Stanton talk and then the other way around as well. And so even if you're looking at Travis, you're you're hearing Jane and it's, it's constantly overlapping, as you were saying about the reflections in the mirror and their faces overlapping, their voices are overlapping. It's, it, yeah, it works so well. And um, I also want to comment on the title of the film. So Paris, Texas is literal in terms of there is a place in Texas called Paris. And um, Travis mentions at the beginning of the film that he owns a plot of land there. And he says he can't remember why, but I think he starts to remember as the film goes on. And he says uh, he thinks he started there. He thinks his, his parents you know, that, that was conceived where it, him yes, there. Yes, that was where he was conceived. And yes. by purchasing the land where, his, where, where he believes he was conceived, where his um, mother and father had a moment of passion, yeah. that would that will bring some insight to him to his life and i think he believes that that was his beginning so it should be his ending he says to hunter he <coughs> he bought the land with the in intent that himself and jane and hunter would live there they'd build a house there and they'd live there and, and he'd make, live out his days there yeah and it's in that scene that which at the beginning of the film is it's in that scene that we see there's more depth to to travis even if he's a little eccentric yeah you see that and there's still <laughs> some depth to him yeah and um I had some more thoughts about it, um, where Paris, Texas, it evokes two different worlds for me. I mean, if you think Paris, for me, I smell perfume, I hear bells, and I can see the lights in the Eiffel Tower, and then I think Texas, and I can smell oil, and the feel of coarse sand, and maybe the sound of machinery. Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed, and the wind, and... They're two different worlds, and I think Jane is Paris. You know, she's got the glamour, she's got the well-fitting clothes, and and Travis is Texas. He's got the cowboy boots and the jeans and the moustache, and he's got this weathered face and and the cap, of course. And I feel like they were almost doomed from the start, and Travis knew that. He knew that he's also quite a bit older than Jane, and I think he always knew he would always be Texas, and she would always be Paris, and they could never really... Yeah, it's a, a very interesting title. I think it's. I think it has a reason behind it, and you probably mentioned a very good reason why it's called Paris, Texas. I think it's also somewhat of an ironic mm. title as well, because it sort of draws you into the idea of thinking of Paris as this glamorous place, but then contrasts that immediately with Texas, which is somewhere which is very rough and ready yeah. and pragmatic no thrill no thrills everything you see 
in the American Southwestern landscape, there's utility to it. So you've got your farm, you've got your roads, you've got your electricity pylons. Whereas in Paris, it's you've got your boulevards, you've got your um, your bistros. But um, yeah, and the ending is so touching because Travis achieves his goal of reuniting Jane and Hunter and that beautiful scene when she enters the hotel room because uh, Travis gave her the number of the room and she goes in and Hunter is just there on the floor playing with Star Wars figures and then they see each other and they're, they're looking at each other almost in wonder and as they get closer and closer she eventually picks him up and she spins him round and they're laughing and they're happy and it's it's really touching because you also see Travis alone again in the dark car driving away and for me I don't feel too sad because I feel like this man is thinking I've finally done something right I've done the right thing because you know in in those scenes with um Jane when they're talking and the more he talks the more he's you know talking about his past she realizes it's the same past for her and she realizes it's Travis and he talks about their marriage he wasn't a good husband he talks about when they had Hunter he wasn't a good father and you think this is a man who's you know he's he's done some bad things but he's trying to do good things but it's not in that showy sort of way it's very subtle yeah when I was talking earlier on about there being depth to independent film I think this is a very good example of depth because so you've got a very good plot, but there's also a moral yeah. to it, really. Because you mentioned that Travis wasn't necessarily... Well, he wasn't perceived by Jane to be a good husband or a good father. But then you start you sympathise with Travis throughout the film, and you see that he is... Well, I believe he is a good person. Yeah, I think that and, time alone did a lot for him. And he, he, in that situation, he thinks, what can I do now to make amends or what can I do to salvage the situation with this family and he knows although it's hurtful it's painful for him mm. he knows that they'll never be back to get it can never work yeah. he even says that himself actually I believe that, he does yeah yeah, yeah that, they, that they can never all be back together it can't work it can't work and so the next best thing the next best um, scenario the next best situation for the family to be in is for his for the boy Hunter to be with his mother Jane, and he has the maturity, he has the maturity, and the goodness to be able to realise that and want that to happen and to put it into action. I also appreciate that it's the realization Travis has made, and it's the decision he's made. But it's not necessarily... Well, he thinks he's made the right decision. And a lot of people might, in terms of the audience, might agree that's the right decision. However, I did have some thoughts about what I would do in the situation. Because personally, I think Hunter was being brought up very well with Anne and Walter. And I think, bless her heart, Jane's kind of working in a shady place. Probably doesn't earn very much. And I'm thinking, you know, they're reunited. But can they really look after each other, Hunter and Jane. And I'd, I'm not too sure. And you're left to wonder that. Um, you just, you don't know. It's, it's quite ambiguous in that way. It's a good point. I think that the ending of it was intended to be happy yeah. ending. I don't think it's necessarily the case because of the 
the line where that Jane is in it that it would compromise her ability to be a, a mother. It's I don't think that was necessarily in well, I don't, from I, I, the film. I think yeah. that the only time line work was mentioned was when or when he made brought up the issue was when Travis was surprised that this is what she was doing. I think he yeah. asked, you know, this is what you do now. Yeah, and he, he's quite mm. he, judgmental about it. And... But I think that, but bearing in mind, the plot's very good. So I think that was brought up because it had to be yeah. brought up. If he hadn't brought it, it wouldn't have, would have felt a bit like a hole. Yeah, you can't ignore this Yeah, it would have felt like a hole in, in the plot. And a child shouldn't really be around that kind of thing. But we are left at the end of the film to think, Right, does the worst happen where, you know, Jane quits the job because it's not, you know, as I said, for a child to be around and then she can't get work in other areas and then what's that like for Hunter and how my brain works, I kind of think, and what about Hunter's schooling and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I take it far and away. But the thing is that you talk about I mean, that's, that, there's, there's that thing of anyone can be a father, but not everyone could be a dad. Anyone could be a mother, not everyone could be a mum. And I feel that the inclusion of Anne, Anne and Walter is very important because they are the aunt and uncle of Hunter, but they took him in, they raised him like he was their own. And it, the, the film gives you a lot of things to think about and... Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think the moral of the story, well, not the moral of the story, but perhaps what the director wanted to convey in that regard is that the situation that Hunter was in, where he was living with his aunt and uncle, his actual father, Travis, I say actual father, his biological father, Travis, was, um, shall, shall we say, unreliable yeah. not not really there for him and his uh, mother was was the same unreliable wasn't really there for him either I think the point that I actually want to make there is that it's not an ideal situation but then the most ideal situation of Hunter being raised by his biological father his biological mother in what would be a nuclear family a normal family yeah. can't happen I also think and um, so the happy ending is that the next best thing happens where Hunter is is going to be raised by his mother. Yeah, and I also think this film is sort of saying you have to respect the decisions these characters are, are making. So you need to deliver good character motivation so that the decisions aren't totally out of character. But at the end of the film, we have to respect that that's the decisions they made and maybe we would have done it differently. But the thing is that we're thinking about that. Oh, what would I have done differently? And, you know. I, I think that another point that I actually wanted to make is that a person can be, not, don't say the word bad father, I want to say a person could have difficulty being a father, but not necessarily be a bad person. Mm. And what happens is that if a good person who's having why one so a good person who is having difficulty as a father makes the right decision to find someone for for their child who can raise them um who can give them 
that upbringing that they wouldn't be able to occupy them with themselves. Mm. And so the idea here is that bad father doesn't mean a bad person. Yeah, and I also think, to go along with what you're saying, that just because you're struggling to raise your child doesn't mean you don't love your child and want to be a good parent. Yeah, and that point as well, which is a very important point. Um, but, so, yeah. what do you think of the film overall? What was your conclusion of it? Overall, as soon as I finished it and I was thinking about talking about it on the show, I thought out of all the films we've talked about so far, this is the one where I'm going to go to your house, I'm going to bang on your door, I'm going to rattle your windows and I'm going to say, please watch Paris, Texas, because this is just so important in film history for me, out of, you know, everything, because it's, as I said before, the ace in the hole for the director and his work, the, for the writer and his work, for the Harry Dean Stanton's work, this is the one. Yeah, I would say if you want to start getting interested in independent cinema, this is the first film I would. Oh yeah, launching watch. pad, totally. Absolutely, and I'm very glad that I chose this film. I you did indeed. That it's had a very powerful effect in you. It's something you can really relate to, and that's that's good. That's what you want. It's a lovely choice, Chris. Yeah. And really, when I when I do these podcasts, I think about critiquing films, but really, I'm just just or reviewing it. But really, it's just an advert because. I, I just really enjoyed it and I can't fault it. Yeah, I think with our show, we are reviewing these films often chronologically and we're commenting on things, but it is a big celebration as well. We we want people to hear what we've got to say because we want them to watch the film and have that experience we had. And, you know, it's just... It's just really great, basically. Um, but anyway, so we'll wrap this up now. And so because this was Chris's pick, I'm picking episode four, which I believe we'll be doing next Friday. Yeah. Oh, um, we'll just tell you a little bit about our sort of schedule of releasing episodes. We try to do... Do you have a schedule? Um, yeah, more or less. Uh, okay. More or less, I mean. But we try to, we're, we're trying to do two episodes a month, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, two episodes a month. Uh, so, yeah, Chris picked this one. I'm picking next one, which will be High and Low by Akira Kurosawa, which you can watch on BFI Player. I look forward to watching it as well. I haven't actually seen it yet. So. Well, I know Akira Kurosawa, but I, I haven't seen it either. And, yeah, I'm pretty darn stoked Ooh. for it. It's pretty, pretty cool. But anyway, so, so <laughs> yeah, so we'll say goodbye. 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 In the 21st century, some guy from Brian. They did have a drone. <laughs> a drone! <laughs> well, they did have a drone today at the, at, the, at the tournament, and I was having a laugh with the guy I was playing against because we were like, oh mate, if it comes over, you've got to shoot for it. You've got to go for it. I, I'll even just let you just have a go. <laughs> Fatality. Yeah.